This morning, I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6 with me. We will not tarry long before we jump into our text. Uh, Romans is a book written about 56 or 58 AD, uh, one that Paul wrote, writing really. And one of the things I think that's necessary for us to see is this is a letter written to a, a group of believers that are really... I guess you could say infants in the faith. Uh, infants in that the church is so new. Now the, the, the thing that you would expect from that is, and if, if this was written to infants in the faith some almost 2,000 years ago, then that would probably make us like master level mature faith people. Amen? It's not how it works. You know, like every individual starts that cycle over. There is not, as the church continues to grow, the church is made up of individuals. And so we are still learning the lessons, even though we look back and we see what the early church was dealing with. It's this beautiful window that we get to look back at passages like this and, and see how we still are. It's not that as a species we learn a lesson, but as individuals we have to learn. As individuals we grow. And so Romans chapter 6, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 11. It is the lectionary text for the morning. I'd invite you to stand if you would. Uh, I'll go to the screen here. There's a, uh, a screen right after that. There we go. That has Romans chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. You're welcome to follow along on the screen or, or keep it there in, uh, in maybe on your phone or in paper copy, whatever you may have in front of you. Romans chapter 6 beginning in verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Some of your Bibles will say abound. By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with Him in death like His, we will certainly also be united with Him in a resurrection like His. For we know that our old self was crucified with Him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, He cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over Him. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. God, we come before you this morning reading a passage that we recognize is one that not only spoke to those in the faith nearly 2,000 years ago, but God also speaks so clearly into the faith that we live today. And so would you maybe sharpen us, hone us, craft us a little bit this morning in knowing what it means and what Paul is talking about. And God, for that, we'll give you praise. In your son's name we pray. Amen. And you may be seated. I want to compartmentalize our time together into a couple of segments. And because of the nature of how this flows, I really wanted to start a little bit further backwards, uh, maybe further in this. I've left it, if you're here in-house with us this morning, I've left that last slide, verses 8 through 11, up on the screen because I really want to deal with something in verse 9 before we go back and deal with the bulk of this text. All right, So just kind of compartmentalize in your mind, if you will, uh, kind of a, a short segment of this, and then we'll break back into what the larger body of this text is talking about and how it, how it speaks to us. One of the things that I thought intriguing about this text, and I think it, it speaks to us, is in verse 9 there's this, this weird verbiage of how death no longer has mastery over him. Since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. I want you to think with me for just a moment and ask yourself the question, how would you suggest that death has mastery over us? 
Because our, our interaction with dying and death is an interesting one, especially from the perspective of a believer. I mean, when you think about yourself passing away, I know that's a, a bit of a difficult thought this morning. What sorts of mixed emotions come up within us, especially from the believer standing? It's a weird thing, isn't it? Don't we long to be with Christ in heaven? We do, don't we? We do, don't we? I sure hope so. Okay, like I need to talk to you more about Jesus. And I got like, whoa, 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 whoa. We got other things we need to deal with if we're not there yet, okay? We long to be there. And yet, even as believers, we still have this weird relationship. Come on, we sing about it in some of the country songs. I want to go to heaven, but I just don't want to go tonight. You know, like tons and tons of times we have this weird of like, I don't know that I fear death, but I also like, I'm not real sure about it. And there's this like, but I don't want to die now. And then there's, we have this kind of weird mental tearing that takes place because we're not really sure how to compartmentalize in our mind. Like to die and to be alive with Christ, to be in heaven is to be outside the scope of time. And so we're asking for something that is so weird to compartmentalize. And like, I want more time on this earth when I don't even know how to compartmentalize time. I, I, all I know is like what I've lived here. And for some reason, I think like, you know, they say as you get older, and that's one of the things I've absolutely experienced. Uh, young people, here's another one that you hear old people say to young people, that time goes faster as you get older, right? Old people, how many of you would say time goes faster as you get older? You look back and you're in the place where I'm at right now. I get to see some of you who are having kids and starting families and, and some of you are in that stage of life. And I remember what it was like to have a one-year-old and a two-year-old running around the house. And then all of a sudden, I've got one graduated, one graduating next year. And then I have friends who have grandchildren already. You know, like Those sorts of things are happening. It's like, what in the world is going on? It's like I wake up and another birthday comes by. and like So it's that interaction with time that I can't make sense with. And yet there's a part of me that I do desire to be in heaven, yet I'm, I'm not sure that I'm ready to go there today or tomorrow. Not ready in the sense of like, I know I'm going to heaven, but like, it's just this weird way of verbalizing. It's like weird peace to make with this. And, and the thing that I found is, you know, the only people who are truly at peace are people of faith. Now, I didn't say they're necessarily faith in Christ, all right? But people who are scared of death are scared because they don't know what's coming next. Because they have, in their minds, they've not made peace with what's going to happen next. Is it some sort of afterlife? Is it just over? Um, is there another life after this, both heaven, hell, or you get recreated? You know, like people have different ideas of what that looks like. People who have decided and made some sort of faith jump in their mind to whatever it may be, that there is nothing, that there is a heaven and hell, that there is something else. If they've made peace with that, they tend not to fear death anymore. So I would argue that anyone who has made peace with death has some level of faith in their life. Even if the faith is that there's nothing, they're still believing in something that they can't see. Amen? Still believing in something that they don't know. When we talk about death no longer having mastery over him, Jesus having had the experience, it's no longer theory, it's no longer study, it's no longer faith. It is realization of what that is like. You understand, like, what a mind-boggling place to be. And I know some of you have read books, uh, you've watched documentaries, you've heard testimonies of people who have had glimpses of what we might call the other side. Some of we've all heard stories of this. People that have had these wild experiences where they even perceived their their lost loved ones, or they or they had some type of experience where they felt like they saw Jesus or or some other holy entity that sent them back to earth. And I'm not here this morning to argue that that happened or didn't happen or anything. I'm just saying that for the vast majority, the nth degree vast majority of us, there is still the unknown. There's still that 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 reality that we don't fully understand. 
And because of that, we look back at Jesus and, and sometimes try to get our mind around and say the risen Christ walking this earth is the only one who has completely experienced what it means to die, to be buried and then be back on this earth. And when Paul talks about that it no longer has mastery over him, it's because there's nothing left to fear. You remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we read these words, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? There's nothing left to ask on behalf of Christ because it has been experienced. He has gone through that. By the way, that's a passage that's quoted back to Hosea chapter 13. Uh, not just a New Testament reference in that. When he talks about him having mastery over it, and what a, what a wild place for Jesus to be able to speak back into our lives or for us to even reference Jesus. That like He has experienced quite literally everything of the unknown in this life to be lived. Like To think of Christ as one who has even, has even made that trip, if you will, had that experience. And Paul's very quick to point out that, that he has died again, that he, that he is one that died and then was raised again, I should say, and having done that makes death no longer any mastery, any confusion, any supposition, any curiosity, that we serve a Christ that knows exactly. And that's a, that's, a, that's a thing that speaks to us about the depth of who Jesus is, especially the risen Savior, the one that was walking this earth after that. I told you to compartmentalize here for a little bit. And, and, and when we leave from that part of the discussion of how Paul describes this Christ, I want to go back for a moment and talk for a little bit about that church in its infancy uh, he asks a question that is, it, it kind of reveals a problem in, in the way we talk about Christ. There are some things that we say that make a lot of sense, maybe a, a surface, from a surface standpoint, but they don't exactly flesh out completely. One of those is this, he asked the question in the very beginning in verse 1, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? What would ever prompt that level of thinking? You know what I mean? Like, should I continue to do bad things so that I can experience Jesus greater? Should I continue to do bad things, not Jesus, but, forget, but I can experience the grace of God forgiving me? I mean, if, if you really want to have an incredible experience knowing God, I mean, think back for just a moment. What are the benchmarks of your faith when you experience the presence of God? What are the places in life that you look back and you're like, man, the presence of God, I just felt Him so real. It's hard to say that anything surpasses when you come to a knowledge of who Jesus is and you ask Him to forgive you of your sins. You know what I mean? Like, there's a moment there. Folks, some of you experience that forgiveness later in life. And, and I, would, I would have to be careful in this because this is kind of what Paul's dealing with in, in, in a very similar way. When you experience the forgiveness of Christ later in life, to him who has been forgiven of much, you understand? You know what it means to be forgiven at a great level because maybe there have been things in your life that you look back at with major regrets and you still recognized a Jesus Christ who died on the sin for even you. I'm not taking away any bit of your salvation, but folks, it's hard to say that me as a nine-year-old had some established pattern of life when I asked Jesus to forgive me of my sins and, and became a Christian at that point in the game. I'm not saying that anyone is more or less saved, but the experience, I'm telling you, even as a nine-year-old, I remember getting up from praying at a couch and feeling like the best words I can put to it was like my shoulders were lighter. Does that make sense? Like I didn't have, I didn't have weight on me. I mean, I'm still a nine-year-old and, and I've always been kind of a, you know, husky is the word, all right? Like I've always, there's always been weight, you know, but, but it was just different. There was something spiritually different about me. And there's this draw sometimes to say, well, if I want to experience God at a greater level, then I must do more things so that He can forgive me of more things. 
And I know some of you are absolutely flabbergasted that somebody would have this thought. But folks, we're not too far removed from this. There's a gentleman by the name of Gregory Rasputin, which is a Russian monk, all right, who developed and started having these thought, this thought process. Monks are great for spending lots of time thinking, and, and sometimes they do great things, and in this case, probably not so much. But he started developing this thought process that the more that I sin, the more that Jesus, or the more that God forgives me, and so the more that I've been forgiven, the greater I know that God. And so he became notorious, not, not notable, notorious for being a man who was known for sin because on a more consistent basis, and it doesn't say as we read about him that this was done on a daily or weekly basis, but he had no shame in sinning so that God would forgive him more because that was his theory that the, the more I sin, then the more God will forgive me and the better I will know God. Because in some of you are still like, how could someone ever think this? Go back in Romans chapter 5 for just a moment. If you've got your Bibles back open, Romans chapter 5, Paul actually sets this in motion, but he does so not intentionally. It's something that kind of happens as he's talking about uh, the nature of, uh, of, of who God is and what happens. In Romans chapter 5, verse 20, Paul writes, But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Understand? So like in the same letter, in the same writing, he says, so where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And so people started thinking, I mean, think with me very logically for a moment. Remove, remove some of your process theology for just a second. And think with me for, from a, a very logical standpoint. So if the way to experience more of God's grace is to sin more... And even where Paul says, where sin was greater, grace was greater, then the answer is we must sin more so that we can be forgiven more. Like that's the thought process that's taking place here. Folks, in, in some ways, I, I recognize that you see this. And you see this as a place of like, how could you misrepresent the Bible? I, I hope that you see that this way, that you see things and like, how could you misrepresent the Bible so much to justify that you would continue to sin because it's what Paul is talking about here. And, and you may recognize that, but I need you to recognize this morning, folks, we have a long history. Even in the church that we serve, that we know today, the people we see in the church today, we have a long history of taking small segments of the Bible and making great and grandiose uh, uh, thoughts and, and following out executions in this. We don't always look at the, the total of what's taking place. I mean, in this, you're reading sinners who are saying, well, if grace can, if, if sin increases the level of grace in my life, then like I can sin and do whatever I want. And, and it creates this, and this is where we see it happen in our world today. We read passages and things like this. There are similar ones that you hear taken out of context. Um, Knock and it will be, better remember that one? Open. Ask and it will be given. It creates this thought process, then like, then what I want are the things that I, I should pursue. And so, like, if I want these things, then these are the things I should pursue because the Bible even says that I can have the things that I want. And it, and it creates this thing that may seem at first like this is a, a solid process, a solid thought process. But in reality, when is what you want actually good? I mean, there's an answer to that. When is what you want actually good? Because we, we read these passages of asking it be given and knocking it be open and like there's this thing like then, then God will give to me and we almost feel like we read these passages and all of a sudden we're able to trigger God into doing things. You ever heard people say phrases like I'm, I'm claiming this? Be careful. Okay. I'm not saying that, that there's no level of confidence in God. We have to be careful claiming things that we want to be ours. Understand? It's the same thing where people are reading Bible verses and we're, we're taking them to a little bit further nth degree. You can't just decide. I don't think this is how God works. And, and if I'm wrong, please someone this week um, claim. Let's see, what would be really fun? That, isn't Tesla coming out with a new truck? Yeah, I'm curious about that one. I need one of you to claim the Tesla truck. 
All right? Drive it to church next week, and I will stand here behind the pulpit and say I was wrong. Okay? But I'm just that's how far people take the claiming thing. You understand? Like, that's how far they take it. In the same way that if I ask and it will be given to me, it creates this very selfish and, and like what is based in us and what we want. And hear the contrast to that. When Jesus prays to his heavenly Father, what words does he use? One of the things I love when Jesus is praying at a time of great stress, he, he's not afraid to bring up, if this cup can pass from me, let that happen. But at the end of the day, do you remember his phrase, not my will, but yours? It's whatever you want. See, folks, God didn't create you to just pursue your own desires and your own wants. I mean, let's be real for a moment. If we, if we do the same things that these people were doing early on about grace, we have to acknowledge, like, we see it happening in the church today where we pursue the things that we want. How many of you, if you were given the opportunity, you think you could sustain life off of cheesecake alone? You know what I mean? Like, come on now, especially some of y'all make some really, really good cheesecake, all right? And like, I'm just telling you, like, if I could have cheesecake all day long, I don't know that husky would be the word for me anymore. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that's the way it would be. I'm just saying, like, but I know if I do that, that's not what's good for me, even though it's what I think I want. I mean, run this to a little bit further degree. It's the reason, it's the reason why addictions aren't justifiable. When drugs, alcohol, pornography, when those things have control, in the moments you're operating off of what you think you want. And folks, I'm just illustrating what you want, what the, what the selfish, what the carnal, what the worldly you wants is not a solid way to operate. As a matter of fact, I mean, think with me about the devastation that human want has caused within this world. Folks, the pornography industry in the U.S. is a $14 billion a year institution. $14 billion a year in pornography. Understand? Uh, globally, it is expected to be a $97 million industry. Destroys people. Absolutely destroys people. Selfish and human wants create places like Epstein Island. You understand? Selfish and human wants, they create things that, that though we operate in the places of want and in, in, in the things that I think I want, folks, we have to acknowledge sometimes that we've taken a great deal of liberty in the scheme of, of life. We've taken a great deal of liberty in using the Bible sometimes to justify because we, we may have heard that where sin increased, grace may abound all the more. And, and we hear that. And sometimes we have to be very careful. And I, and I want to encourage you this. When you read devotions, and I, and I hope there's some aspect of your life, some schedule in your life where you're reading the Bible, one of the things that can keep you from falling into the trap of what these people were doing, one of those things is read more than one verse at a time. Try to stick, I, general rule of thumb, try to read everything within a chapter. Because if you're not very careful, you read passages like, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, and you decide like, you know what, um, I, I need... I need to, uh, what's something ridiculous that we might think that we're doing? You know, like, I, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So, like, I need to, oh, I don't know. I have a flat tire and I don't have a jack. Well, Christ gives me strength. I can pick up this truck and you can change the tire. That's not what that passage is about. You understand? Like, not whatsoever. You read that within its context. And Paul's saying, I know what it means to have times of great plenty and of want. To be hungry, and to be well fed, to be naked and clothed. I mean, like all the contrasts. They're talking about the, 
But in all ways, I live through Christ who gives me strength. All of a sudden, it makes sense, right? Like, be very careful when you read the Bible not to take out these selected passages because infants in the, in the faith, this is how we get into these places where you're asking questions or saying, coming up with these ridiculous thoughts that I should continue to sin more so that grace may abound. As a matter of fact, you want to know what Paul says when he, when he talks about this, this sinning and asking this question? It's a word that you hear me use from time to time. Uh, is the only place in the New Testament the word is used. And the Greek word is meganoita. All right? So you're going to get to learn a new word this morning if you don't remember it already. Meganoita on three. One, two, three. Meganoita. It means an absolute emphatic. When he's asking, should we continue to sin so that grace may abound? Is this emphatic? No. Absolutely not. You should not continue to sin. You should... Your sins should have died on the cross with Christ, both like from a proverbial speaking standpoint. When Jesus Christ died on the cross to forgive your sins, He is dying to, for the forgiveness of yours. So when you ask Him to forgive you of your sins, those sins are gone and over with. Not something that we revisit, not something that we tinker with from time to time, not something that we continue to live in. It's something that we give over and that we, we allow that part of ourselves to die in Christ. There's a story that came out years ago, and I thought it was worth sharing this morning. A man and his wife and his mother-in-law actually traveled to Israel to visit the Holy Land. Um, in their trip over there, unfortunately, the mother-in-law passed away. Tragic circumstances, but the guys who take care of the burying thing said, you know, when, you, uh, when, you, when your wife died over here, you have two options. We can ship her back to your country, uh, but that shipping's going to be about $10,000 if you want to bury her back home. That's expensive. However, in our country, it's very inexpensive to bury people. So about $250, US we can bury her here in the Holy Land. And the guy sits there thinking for a minute, and he was looking at his wife, and he said, you know, I want you to ship her back. Yeah, I want you to ship her back. And the guy goes, it's $10,000 to ship her back. It's two fifty dollars for her to be born here in the Holy Land. What are you thinking? And he said, you know, it wasn't too many years ago, y'all buried a man here, and three days later, he got back up. I just can't take that chance. Ship her back. Why? Why do we keep resurrecting our sins? Why do we keep Why do we keep asking God to forgive us? And in moments of boredom or moments when we're not occupied, idle minds, who idle hands. And as soon as, as soon as we get past the part of asking God to forgive us, too many times we find ourselves right back dabbling in the thing that we ask God to forgive us. And Jesus is looking down going, I thought, I thought that was dead. Why, why are you giving your sin CPR to bring it back? Why are you resuscitating that which takes you away from me? I have forgiven you of that, and it was dead and gone. And yet you are planting new seeds trying to regrow it all over again. Can you imagine how baffled Jesus is looking down on us as we bring our sins back up. What, what are you doing? Be dead to this. Paul, do not continue to sin. You have been forgiven of these things. Now rid yourself just as Christ died. As, as the going down, this beautiful symbolism as well of, of baptism, as going down and coming back up a new creature. You know, folks, when we get done with the baptistry up here like we did last Sunday, you know what we do with that water? We don't give it back to the people. You know what I mean? Like, it goes out, drains, it's gone, it's forever. It would be like somebody trying to get the baptismal waters back and pour it back on themselves because they want to carry those sins back with them again. You see the ridiculousness of this. Folks, this morning you have been called. You have been forgiven and you have been called to sin no more, to leave that behind you. 
that that old self is dead. And so this morning, we're going to close with a beautiful, beautiful reminder of having been forgiven by the acts of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Here in the sanctuary this morning, we're going to have a time to be able to, to participate in communion together. I'm going to invite a couple of our musicians just to play music in the background for us as we be able to, to move around a bit. I want to invite you to go ahead and stand with me if you would. And what we're going to do is we're going to make the next few moments, we're going to consider this holy space, all right? We're going to consider this holy space in that I will be standing over here to my right and your left. I'll be serving communion right here in this corner. I'll have a small gluten-free wafer and a small cup of juice. And you on this side of the sanctuary will funnel to the outside. You'll come down and pick up those elements. But what I would like for you to do is that this morning, if, if in the thought process, because you get some time here, you get some time to think in a good way, in the process of walking down to gain these elements, if you recognize this morning that you have... You have allowed sin to creep back in. Let me tell you how this is structured so beautifully. There are altars right here and plenty of room to move by where you're able to kneel, where you're able to go back into your chair wherever you are and ask God, God, ashamedly forgive me again and help me to let this die. Don't, don't allow this to, to be resurrected again, but allow these sins, these things that separate me from you, help me allow them to completely die off. And so maybe while holding a small cup of juice and a small wafer, you want to spend some time holy. I want to, in, in holy moments, I want to invite you also to do this. Don't mess with anybody. Almost like don't. Respect other people's holy time in this moment. And so for the next few moments, I'm going to ask to, that uh, those who are on this side will serve this direction. I'm going to ask... Um, yeah, I'm going to ask uh, Pam and Brian, if you would, to serve right here. I'll hand you the elements here in just a second. And then as we begin to move, as soon as we're in place, you can go ahead and filter out and then we'll close in prayer together. I think it important this morning while holding representation of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, it is worth noting again, this was not done in vain so that we can continue to do stupid things. Amen? This was done with the intention of us being able to be set free from the foolishness, from the selfishness of sin, to be set free from the from the things that separate us from God. I'll remind you this morning, Jesus sat around with His disciples at a time reclining at a table. He took a piece of bread. Though they had no real clue what He was meaning, we do. <clears throat> to take a piece of bread and to eat it, and every time they did so, to do so in remembrance of Him, and we join in that. In a similar way, passing around a cup, he told them that this was a symbol and a sign of a new covenant. That every time they drank of this cup, to do so in remembrance of him. And we do so this morning. God, we come before you today, beginning our time together, wondering how in the world could these people think that sinning was okay. And yet, God, as we mature in the faith, we recognize that this is one of the bridges that we must cross. Our species didn't learn it 2,000 years ago, but we as individuals are called to this same conversation, this same reality. God, for some this morning, the thoughts of being set free from sin, God, is something that is, God, it's freeing. It's, it's the best news that they could possibly be told. And so this morning, God, for those who have struggled and have been reviving their past sin time and time again, 
God, would you help them to recognize that through the blood of Jesus Christ, through the forgiveness of sins, and through the work of the Holy Spirit, they no longer have to be held captive by these things anymore. God, would you help them? It's easy for us, God, to make these statements and ask for forgiveness in holy settings like this. But God, where the real work is, is when we walk outside of these doors. And so would you send us back into our world, into our places of business, into our homes, into the idle times of our life, and remind us that God, our sins that we asked you to forgive us of this morning are dead. And any life that they live after that is life that we give them. God, help us to no longer give those life anymore. God, we love you today. We thank you for who you are. It is your son's name we pray. 